Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Micah chapter 5 will cover the first five verses tonight. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come to your word that again you would, you would rebuke us, you would show us our hidden faults, that you would um, wound us and heal us. Father, that we would be able to focus on your word, that our minds would meditate upon your glory, and Father, that the words of my mouth and all of our meditations would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. So again, back in Micah, the prophet Micah, you remember, is a contemporary with the prophet Isaiah. They are both sent to the southern kingdom of Judah, specifically to Jerusalem, to warn them regarding God's coming judgment. The northern kingdom, Samaria, at about this point is being laid waste, is being dragged off the land. And what are their sins? The sins of Judah are these that they're being warned about. The leaders of Judah are setting aside God's law for their own self-interest. They are profiting off the people, they are practicing injustice, and they are going after idols, all of which... Uh, makes things profitable and easy for them. You remember in Micah 3.2, there was the prophecy that, or Micah 3.2, it, it, it uh, boils down their sin to this. They hate good and love evil, which is a serious indictment. To hate what God says is good and to love what God says is evil is, is the, the height of wickedness. But in chapter 5, the sun breaks through. It did in chapter 4. There were still clouds in the midst of that sun. In chapter 5, the sun really does break through the clouds here. And um, God's mercy is demonstrated even when afflictions are promised from him. And so you think of the, the prayer that the prophet Habakkuk makes. He says, in wrath, remember mercy. And... That is, that is what we see here. He's, he's prophesying, Micah's prophesying, God is telling the people, you'll be, 
You'll be dragged off the land. Your, your, your sins have risen up to me. Jerusalem will be uh, a heap of ruins. And yet, here's this prophecy of His Son, Jesus Christ, coming to rescue His people in the midst of that. And so, in His wrath, He's remembering mercy. And, and His mercy triumphs over judgment. So, um, by the way, chapter uh, 5, verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible is chapter 4, verse 14. And then 5, 1 is where 5, 2 is. Just thought that was interesting. Um, now, what is, so this first statement, now muster yourselves in troops. We understand that. Gather yourself in, in groups um, for battle. And then it says daughter of troops. Uh, what does that mean, the daughter of troops? I think that's a way of saying that this is a nation accustomed to this action, right? They're the daughter of troops. They're the, like we would say, the sons of freedom or something, right? They, that, this is like where they live. Um, and so nation, this is a nation accustomed to this action. And um, one of the commentators I was reading said, uh, this, is, this is calling Zion warlike Zion. And, um, and so God raises up his people's enemies to discipline him. So many examples of this in the Old Testament and the prophets, aren't there? God raising up nations to, to discipline his own people. And, and so what he's saying is, muster yourselves in troops, they will lay siege to you. And with a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel. And by judge of Israel, I think they mean the king, the, the ruler, the highest uh, authority in the land. The judge of Israel will be uh, struck on the, the cheek, that supreme judge of Israel. Now, this is a prophecy that's fulfilled, right? Well, who is this fulfilled in? Who does Jer Jeremiah have to deal with? I think I heard it. No, 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 no. What king of Israel? What king of Israel is right at the end? Close? No? Farther away? <laughs> Israel. All right, turn to Jeremiah 39. Zedekiah, Zedekiah. So this is the fulfillment of this prophecy here. This is the fulfillment of Micah telling, telling Israel or J Judah in Jerusalem that they will be laid siege. This is what happens. Now when Jerusalem was captured in the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. There's that siege. So it's Nebuchadnezzar. Where do we read about Nebuchadnezzar? That's an easy one. You should be able to get that. Zedekiah, I'll give you a pat. I'll, you know, that's harder. Where do we read about Nebuchadnezzar? Okay, in Daniel. Thank you. All right, making progress. So Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his all, all his army came to Jerusalem, laid siege to it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, in the ninth day of the month, the city wall was breached. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came in and sat down at the middle gates. Nagar Sar Ezer, 
Samgar Nebu, Sarsikam, the Rab Saris, Nergal Ser Ezer, the Rab Mag, and all the rest of the officials of the king of Babylon. And when Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and all the men of war saw them, they fled and went out of the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls and went out toward the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans, Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And they seized him and brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, in Riblah, in the land of Hamath. And he passed sentence on him. Then the king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes at Riblah. The king of Babylon also slew all the nobles of Judah. He then blinded Zedekiah's eyes and bound him in fetters of bronze to bring him to Babylon. As for the rest of the people who were left in the city, the deserters who had gone over to him, and the rest of the people who remained, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, carried them into exile in Babylon. But some of the poorest people who had nothing, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, left behind in the land of Judah and gave them vineyards and fields at that time. Those are the ones who married with the Babylonians, right? And then set up that, well, this would have been in the northern kingdom. This would have been the ones that I'm talking about in the morning services that intermarried with the people of the land, the Samaritans, and built that temple up in Mount Gerizim. But anyway, there we see it. There we see Zedekiah is struck on the cheek, right? The judge of Israel is struck on the cheek. Uh, literally, his eyes are, are pulled from his head, Right? And all of his sons are killed in front of him. And all the people, all the leaders of Israel are, are destroyed. And so this prophecy is fulfilled through Nebuchadnezzar. And and that is, that is prophecy fulfilled. Calvin summarizes the first verse here with this. It's as if... He was saying, but you, O Jerusalem, who glory in your grandeur and in your power, and who have abused both, have you forgotten your origin and what happens to nation who boast in their might? Right? You daughter of troops, right? You're boasting in your strength. You're boasting in, um, in your might. And, and it, the only nation who's blessed is is that nation who has God as their Lord, right? The nation is not blessed who has a, a nuclear arsenal, right? Even that nation, by God's power, may fall. Um, I, I read that statement of Calvin, and perhaps it was because it, it's the 4th of July, and I was thinking about this. Um, it, it got me thinking about the State of the Union addresses that we often hear. Uh, January, uh, and the State of the Union address, I realize it's, it's political ambitions, but it, it is always to, to boast, right? To overinflate the strength of the nation. And as Christians, that's offensive to us, right? Because we would actually like to see a president have some humility before God and say, all of this means nothing if God is against us. Or all of this is, this, would, this will be something if God is with us. Some acknowledgement of, of the sovereign God who raises up and dashes nations. 
Here, here are a couple quotes from, from State of the Union addresses, and it was really fascinating to go back and just look through these, especially the more recent ones that I've lived through. Uh, the older ones are fascinating historically to see what they were working on. Uh, George Washington mentions, we've, we've got to have roads. <laughs> you know, and it's like, yeah, yeah, you probably do need to have roads back then. Um, we still do, <laughs> 270 years later. Um, I won't, I, won't, I won't mention the names of the presidents unless you want me to, but here's one from, from uh, oh, I can't even mention the years. So you'll figure it out. Here's one. If war is forced upon us, we will fight with the full force and might of the United States military, and we will prevail. That's almost in every State of the Union address I've ever heard. Here's another. Our military is the most powerful on earth by far. Here's another. We have, without hyperbole, the greatest fighting force in the history of the world. I, I mean, think of, think of the forces. Think of, think of Stonewall Jackson's forces. Think of uh, Hannibal just, just uh, coasting through Italy. I mean, think of, uh, I, you just see on and on and on, the Roman legions that controlled the, the world for a thousand years, right? <laughs> um, we, we have, without hyperbole, the greatest fighting force in the history of the world. That was Joe Biden this year. And here's another one. Among the nations of the world, only the United States of America has both the moral standing and the means to back it up. We're the only nation on this earth that could assemble the forces of peace. This is the burden of leadership and the strength that has made America the beacon of freedom in a searching world. Only America has both the moral standing and the means to back it up. Ouch. What's that? You want to know? That was 1991. So that was George Bush, H.W., Um, the second one was Trump. It's our military is the most profound, powerful on earth by far, and we will be winning, I think is how it, how it ends. <laughs> Which that would have given it away if I had said that. Right? <laughs> and the first one was George W. Bush in 2003. You know, I, I, we, this, is, this is the 4th of July, and we have a lot to be thankful for, and I, I don't. I don't deny that. I don't want to diminish that. We have so much to be thankful for. I'm thankful for, uh, I mean, one of the functions of state, I think, that is perfectly legitimate is to have a strong army to protect us. You know, that's a gift from God if we have that. But, but there is no humility in our leaders. There is no acknowledgement of God's sovereign power over all things. There's no acknowledgement. And so I don't have any problem with a, a strong military, but we must realize that God raises and up and brings down nations. So um, while we put on our armor, we must not boast like those who take it off. Right? But that is what we do. We will go on as a nation if God wills it. We will go on as a nation if God wills it. And this is wrapped up in this prophecy this is wrapped up in what Micah is saying to the people of Israel. 
Judah, that special people of God, never thought God would chastise them by allowing them to fall and, dra- and get dragged from the land, that promised land, that land that for ages they had been working toward and had. And, and, and here God, God cares more about righteousness than he does about his people being on that land. And so he, he's willing to, he's willing to, to give the land a Sabbath from their sins. Um, God cares about their righteousness, and when they sin, he is not willing to turn a blind eye. Um, up rises Babylon. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, not idols. They had gone after idols, and God is a jealous God. We just read that. Right? And, and blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, not blessed is the nation who boasts in their power and achievement while killing a generation of its own children. And who call evil good and good evil, who call sexual perversion good and good, homes with mothers and fathers evil. Right? That, that, is, that is the nation that we live in now. And we know that it's not pleasing to the Lord. Would that some leader acknowledge this fact? Um, but there are very, very few. And so, so this, this is the beginning. This is packed into this one verse. You know, the, the siege is coming. Um, and, and the prophecy will be fulfilled. And then, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. You know, it's, it's, we know this verse well because of Luke and the, the Christmas story, right? We've heard this verse so many times. And here it is, this, this incredible mercy of God in the midst of his promise to discipline them severely. God rebukes them and brings against them this foreign power and promises them salvation almost in the same breath. Verses 2 through 5, right? But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From, one, from you, one will come forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. I mean, there's so much glory in these verses, right? So much glory. Um, in Matthew chapter 2, this is quoted by the chief priests and scribes when Herod asks where the child is, right? So the chief priests and, and the scribes know this verse. They, they've, they've settled on this as the place where the Messiah would come from, Bethlehem. And, um, and they point to it. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And remember, Jerusalem is to be a heap of ruins, 312, Bethlehem will be the home of the Messiah. 
Jerusalem is destroyed, and yet Bethlehem, little Bethlehem, will be the home of the Messiah. It's like saying New York City will be uh, raised to the ground, but from Spartanburg will come the Messiah. I mean, it's, it's like not what is expected. It's not what we would expect. We would expect that the Messiah, this eternal king, would come to the most populous area and, you know, the, the theatrics would be uh, intense. But there is nothing, <laughs> there is, it's so, so humble, all of it. Um, and so the Messiah is born in Bethlehem, an obscure place, an insignificant place, and, and <laughs> it's one of those times where God's methods don't meet with our expectations, right? Jesus was born in obscurity in a manger, right? There's not even room for them in the inn. He's born in the stables. He didn't have an attractive face, right? He's just, he's an ordinary looking man. He is, those he came to rejected him. He suffered, he died, and all the while, that is God's plan for triumphing over not just the nations of the world, but death itself. Death and hell triumphed along that path of just simple, simple obscurity. God is at work in obscure ways, and that's, that will be the story of his people and the church through all the ages until Christ returns. Right? God is at work in this church in Spartanburg, South Carolina still today. And um, that will be the way that things work until Christ returns. Calvin said, God has ways of causing his church to flourish which human reason cannot comprehend. Right? He has ways of making his church sustained, and um, it's just not things that we would ever think of. It's not um, strategies that we would, we would ever go after. Um, back to one other point that I skipped over in this, uh, this you know, Jerusalem brought down Bethlehem, the place of the birth of the Messiah. Um, Calvin again says, nothing long endures in this world. Everything is in a state of motion. Nothing long endures. Jerusalem falls. Rome falls, right? The United States at some point will fall according to God's plan, right? The, the nations of Europe will fall. The, the cities of Africa will fall. Others will rise up in their place. Everything is in a constant state of motion, right? There is nothing in this world that is eternal other than Christ's kingdom. That's the glory of Christ's kingdom, isn't it? That it's never ending. It's eternal, right? It will be when, when, when that new Jerusalem descends to the earth, then things will stop being in motion. Things will not rise up and fall. There will be one kingdom and it will reign over all. And so that, that will be satisfying because not even our bodies will be in a state of motion. Our bodies will be eternal. Our lives will be eternal. We will enjoy uh, 
I think one of the most difficult parts of life, and I think you would all affirm this, is, is the unexpected and change and the things you can't anticipate, which is most things. Right? That's, that is so difficult, but all of that is gone in Christ's kingdom. It's stability. It's peace. It's the freedom from pain. It's no more broken relationships. It's, it's stability after stability. But in this life, we have suffering. And amazingly, God uses that suffering for His purpose. To make us fit for that eternal Sabbath rest. And so, um, that is Christ's kingdom here. And that kingdom, that kingdom over which He reigns, came in this obscure way. And the, the birth of his birth is even mentioned here. What do we learn about Jesus from this passage? You look at these, these five verses and we learn quite a bit. He's the ruler of the church, right? He'll be ruler in Israel. He is the ruler of the church. And we, we could go to Ephesians 1.22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. That is Christ's rule. He's ancient and eternal. Look at the second part of verse 2. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And our minds are taken back to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is eternal, without beginning, without end. He was born of a woman, right? Therefore, He will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child then the people of Israel will come back together, the people of the church. And he's a, he's a shepherd. He will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. Right. So he will shepherd his flock. And again, we think of, of John, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Um, Jesus is a shepherd, which means he's vigilant, which means he, he looks after you as uh, you're a sheep. We're stupid sheep, right? We wander around, we bump into things, we get our heads stuck in fences, uh, we fall down and can't get back up. And Jesus sees and helps. Jesus sees and helps. And he sees us so incapacitated by our sins. And the despicable things that we love for some reason. And he comes in and, and teaches us what is evil and what is good. He is a good shepherd that shepherds his people, Israel. He, he also finds his strength in his father. I think of the, um, I think of the, the uh, prayer he makes in John 17. That, that sweet intimacy that he has with his father. That... The joy of the, if the joy of the Lord is our strength, then Jesus was quite a joyful person, though acquainted with sorrows and grief. He knew his Father. He would withdraw by himself simply to pray. That, and, and you think you think he would have been tempted to just stay in prayer with his Father and not deal with all these numbskulls. Right? I'm sure that was a sweetness to him and a strength for him to carry on his work. He will be renowned in all the earth. 
Right? There's so many passage we could, passages we could go to to speak of that, but uh, you think of his glory being revealed as he returns and all the earth responding to Jesus Christ either with, with uh, joy or with asking the hills and the mountains to fall upon them. And then finally, he's our peace. And I think of, uh, I think of Ephesians chapter 2 where it speaks of Jesus being our peace. But now in Christ Jesus, you who, are formerly, who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity right, between the Jews and the Gentiles. Right? He brings peace. He is the Prince of Peace and brings that peace. And so this is all about our Savior here. It couldn't be clear that this is a prophecy of the Messiah and of of Jesus Christ himself. And so you look at this verse. This is the verse that you should come back to and just meditate on, think through this. But at the end of it, hopefully what you come away with is Jesus is glorious. He's glorious. He's eternal. He's, sh- he's eternal. He is without beginning, and yet he is mindful of each one of you. He is mindful of every soul that he has ever made. Right? E- eternal. He's a king, and yet he, he doesn't by that lock himself in, in the palace and keep himself aloof from the people. No, he's a king who, who uh, supped with tax collectors, and prostitutes. And so there's so much glory in our Savior. You've been called to live in His kingdom. right? You're, you've been called to live in that kingdom with that king. And that, therefore, uh, should cause you to want to live like a citizen of that kingdom. So be done being a worldling. Right? Be done with those things. And and live like you're a citizen of heaven, like you're a citizen of his kingdom, like he is your king. Walk in that reality. Serve, and that means to serve and obey your king. Serve and obey your king. Serve him. Serve his body, the church, by serving, and, and you will be serving him. Serve, serve, um, serve your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And obey him. Know what, he, know what his rules are. Right? Every king has rules for his kingdom. We just read them. Exodus chapter 20. Those are the rules for his kingdom. And that should be our delight. Right? Psalm 119. That should be our light, delight to follow in that. Because, because then we're living as Jesus lived. And Jesus was obeying his father. And that brought that was an expression of his love. And so to love God means obeying his commands. And that's what it means to live in the kingdom of God. That's what it means to live in his, any kingdom, but certainly in his. Obey your king in all your ways, in all the ways that he has commanded you. And this is, this is the last thing. If you live in this manner, thinking of your glorious Savior and thinking of his wonderful kingdom, you will never be disappointed. You'll never be disappointed by any State of the Union speech that Jesus gives. It will always be 
perfectly timed, perfectly said, perfectly meant to humble us and to encourage us and build us up, and perfectly prophetic. It will all come true, and it is all truth. Every word from his mouth is true. So you'll never be disappointed. And then when, when the, the ages have come, been consummated and the wedding feast of the Lamb is taking place and you're there with your Savior that you've lived in his kingdom for so long and, and finally things are there, then you will, you will be satisfied. Right? You will be living finally as the Lord God made you to live and free from sin. So give him praise. Come back to this passage. Meditate on Jesus' glories uh, laid out here. But remember, this is, this is, that needs to be held even as God is saying, I'm going to destroy you, you city. I'm going to de- destroy Jerusalem. But my son, my son will come and he will gather you back together and the sheep of Israel will come back together and, and you will be saved. You will be saved by my hand. Behold the, the kindness and severity of God, right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We praise you uh, for feeding us once again, for uh, putting our minds on Jesus, on his glory, on his work, on his birth, on his, his um, quality of being a shepherd for us. Oh Lord God, I pray that we would live as citizens of his kingdom. And that would be first and foremost to us. That we would be citizens of Zion, that we would be uh, those who, who serve Jesus as king, even before we are good Americans. And Lord, we pray for our nation this evening. We ask that her boast would be not in her own strength, but her boast would be that she has you as her God. And so, Father, we ask for revival, that your spirit would move through this land, that the churches would, would again have the ear of the nation, and the pulpits would preach Jesus and his righteousness, and that there would be a, an outpouring of your spirit and conversions, and the whole nature of this country would be transformed by your power. Father, that is our only hope. That is our only hope, that you by your spirit would lead us to repentance and faith. And we, we boldly ask you to do this work for the sake of your Son and his glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.